to a special edition of the Darn Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, we return to our ongoing spotlight on faculty here at the Darden School of Business, a series we call Office Hours, with a conversation with Yorgos Alianas. Yorgos is a member of the finance faculty here at the Darden School of Business. And in this wide-ranging conversation, we talk about his background, what brought him to Darden. We also spend a considerable amount of time talking about one of his courses, uh, Financial Institutions and Markets, as well as a number of the cases that he's written over the course of his time here at Darden. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my Office Hours interview with Yorgos Alianis. Thank you so much for being here. And so Yorgos, uh, tell us a little bit more about who you are. Uh, what's your background? Hi, Brad, and hi, everybody globally. That's uh, so wonderful to see that uh, you guys are um, dialing in from wherever, uh, you know, all over the world. And uh, um, I find the world fascinating. Uh, having come, uh, I grew up in, in, in Greece. First of all, it's, it's great to be here. Great to be with you, Brett, and uh, thank you for the invitation. I've been at Darden for a long time, uh, more almost 27 years, so quite some time and uh, uh, it's been a great a great home for me and so I'll say more later but uh, I grew up in Greece in uh, outside just outside of Athens I uh, I went to school there uh, I went to uh, the National Technical University of Athens so I studied electrical engineering and um, and computer engineering and uh, I found uh, very 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 soon that uh, I wanted to uh, not to interact just with machines, but actually also interact with people. And uh, so, uh, but it was a fantastic background to have. Uh, I, I didn't really know at the time, but uh, uh, it turns out that finance is actually one of the very engineering uh, subjects of business. So knowing a little bit of how to do differential equations uh, was helpful, uh, at least in my PhD years. Um, so then, uh, you know, I, I basically uh, went straight to an MBA, which was very unusual, but that was late 80s. Uh, by the way, they were pre-internet, so uh, so you just have to mail your applications in. Brett, uh, I know, I'm dating myself here. Uh, and uh, uh, I was lucky, fortunate, actually, to be, uh, to be admitted by University of Massachusetts in Boston, um, straight from undergrad. And uh, so what did I know about uh, the world of business and so on? But it was so eye-opening. I was actually also a research assistant to some faculty there. And uh, that was also eye-opening because that got me sort of to think about, um, uh, you know, a bit of research and a bit of understanding how, you know, how do we come about, you know, the new knowledge that uh, we we teach our our students and uh, so I was, uh, you know, people were saying, "Hey, you, you, you know, you have time. Why don't you do a PhD?" And I said, after the MBA, and I said, uh, "Okay, you know, that sounds." Um, I was always drawn into teaching. I have to tell you, um, uh, while I was in uh, undergrad, I was uh, something very popular in Greece. You, uh, you tutor. Uh, you do a lot of tutoring for you know pocket money which was not so pocket actually at some point and um you know i taught very different subjects too i was teaching high school kids and it was uh, you know mathematics it was physics it was chemistry uh it was even german so it was like so many different things and uh, 
you know what you know one stop shopping you know <laughs> whatever you want I, I'll, I'll teach you and I was so fascinated by just the way people learn and how can I make things uh, clearer easier um, you know what is the process of learning how, how does learning stick all kinds of things. I mean, it was just a, it was just so enjoyable to see the students progress. Uh, I think that was the biggest um, takeaway. And uh, so I, I had that in the back of my mind. And so when somebody said, you know, you know, why don't you think about a PhD? Um, that was in a way um, not so far fetched. I said, you know, hey, I need a PhD to to teach. And so then the question was, what what subject? And so there was like actually some competition between strategy and finance. And uh, I quickly found out that my background um, was more attractive to finance than to strategy. I don't know what background I should have had to 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 do strategy. But the good news is that I was accepted to NYU, which was a great place uh, for finance. And uh, for those of you who don't know, it has like 50 faculty members in finance. And so what what's helpful about that is that you can uh, really explore the different sides of finance and the different topics. And you can find professors basically that you would like to work with because you find the topic interesting and so on. So there's all kinds of different fields in finance, in, including you know, a broad field about asset pricing that we call it, which is about how prices are formed. And then there's corporate finance, which is you know, how, how corporations you know, fund themselves, how they finance, what do they do with, them, you know, with the cash flow afterwards and so on. And, uh, um, and then there's also theory and empirical uh, work. So you can do theoretical work, but you can also look at data and look at empirical. And so it was, it was, it was uh, actually very, I was actually very fortunate to be at a place like that because I could choose and I chose to do uh, empirical corporate finance, which uh, served me very well. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, and after NYU, um, basically not after, during your last year, you go in the job market. Um, which is a fascinating experience in and of itself because um, you mail in applications at that time. <laughs> Again, Brett, there was, I, don't, I think it was that the internet had started, but I don't know exactly. They were still wanted to have a package. So I remember we were like mailing those in and, uh, you know, with letters of recommendation and, and your papers, basically your, your thesis. Uh, and and then you're waiting for the first round uh like you know you wait for a call and i'm sure now there are like whatsapp you know or or text i don't know exactly what's going on right now but at that time you were waiting for a call and it was just a, a big stress like over the voicemail right and anyway so you get those uh and then you go to um a, a conference and 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 at that time in that conference you just go like you know, from one hotel room to another, depending on, you know, where the, um, the different schools are. And, uh, you know, you, you open the door and there's like, you know, five faculty members across from you. So it's, you know, it could be quite intimidating. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it, take, it takes a little bit of uh, adjusting to it because, you know, you run from one hotel to another and from one room to another, and, you know, you just try to keep it straight. Um, after 20, 20 interviews or so, like what have I said to who, when, but um, what was very fascinating, um, I mean, you always have some 
schools that you're focused on that you think that, um, you know, those are the ones that will allow you to grow and, and you know, and, and carry on with your life and your career and so on. And, um, and you know, honestly, Darden was one of them, but it wasn't, I didn't know as much uh, about, uh, about the school, but my interview um, was, was amazing. I mean, I, I loved uh, sort of hearing about uh, more about Darden and sort of the emphasis on, uh, on the teaching side, the emphasis on developing leaders, the emphasis on um, really uh, working with our students, getting close to them and, uh, you know, bring the best in them, uh, see them grow, uh, make this uh, non-transactional, like this is sort of a, a lifelong uh, relationship that uh, um, you see and 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 you you enjoy um, now now after having spent you know twenty seven years at Darden, uh, it, it, it I can attest that it was all true um, that it's not something you know you teach somebody and then you know you never see them again or you never hear from them again. I mean there are some students that you know are everywhere and you know but. When I went to India, for example, I, um, for a program, I, we had a reception and it was so great to see some students I hadn't seen in, I don't know, 15 years. And, um, and there was still the same connection with them. And uh, they, the interesting part you might find is that they did remember things I told them. And he, they're like, you told us X, and I'm like, I have, I don't remember, sorry. Uh, the good news was <laughs> that actually what I, what I had told them was right. So that was good. <laughs> I was like, okay, uh, you know, early on in my career, you know, it was, you, you know, you just, you're just trying to learn as much as possible and you try to, um, you know, to develop your own thinking of how you want to educate people, right? And uh, so anyway, it's just such a always thrilling moment to see uh, former students anywhere, you know, from New York to, 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 to Delhi, uh, to uh, Buenos Aires, to, you know, all kinds of, you know, Rio, all kinds of places that I have uh, luxury to, to spend time. And, um, and you're always learning as to, you know, how things evolve and so on. So anyway, uh, there was, you know, going back to the story about uh, how I got to Darden, it was a nice, uh, you know, First of all, there was like a, something really uh, great about the interview and the approach. And, and I'm sure all of you guys who have uh, been in an interview and done an interview, you come away from an interview and you say, okay, I'll never want to go to that place <laughs> because, you know, there was just no connection. Uh, and there's other places where you like, this is where I want to go. And uh, Darden was really one of the I would say a few places that I felt like really great connection. Um, my two colleagues who, you know, have recently retired actually. So I was very fortunate to be colleagues with them for so long and learn from them. Um, amazing, amazing colleagues. And that drew me, you know, really when, when we talked about how seriously uh, we take 
our job to develop leaders and you know to develop responsible leaders for the future and i didn't want to be in academia to just sit in a, in an office and you know just close my door and think big thoughts I, I like to do that too and we have time i mean this is the nice thing about being in academia where you actually have some time where you can you know except for like emails from Brett that, you know, disturb you and say, you know, you just have to do like now, uh, thank you, Brett, uh, like a, a webinar, you know, you can think big thoughts and you can, you can write new pieces and so on. So anyway, um, but if I, if I, if I am to be in academia, I just really wanted to uh, engage fully and 150% into um, educating the future leaders. And imagine we we have the privilege to spend two years with incredible talent and incredible um you know promise and we it's our obligation it's our it's our duty but it's also our um you know blessing in many ways to to be able to be in that position to shape somebody's future. And so I take, uh, I think, I mean, we all at Darden take this very seriously. And it's been honestly, life well spent. Um, and, and I can't think of a better way to really, uh, you know, spend spend my life. And I, you know, we'll talk later. I know, I, you know, I, I had some, uh, uh, deviations, uh, you know, in Wall Street and so on. And, uh, you know, we can talk more about that. Uh, feel free to chime in, feel free to, uh, to ask questions. I can go on and on, as you can imagine, this is, uh, this is actually, you know, uh, not my usual when I teach, because, you know, we're teaching in a different way. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I can go on in that direction or something else. Uh, you tell me, Brett, I'm, I'm waiting for your cue. I said a lot. Well, well, that's all good. Let, let's talk a little bit more about how people, how you do teach here at Darden. Some of our attendees uh, may know that Darden is what you would call a case method school. Case method is well, one of the principal ways you, you learn here. We also have experiential based classes uh, too, but you hear a lot about case method and, and Darden. So you teach finance. Um, and so how does the case uh, discussion go? How do you how do you prepare for a case? And then how does it play out, particularly with a more quantitative topic like finance? Right. I, I think it's uh, um, it's so well suited, actually, in uh, for for quantitative topics uh, as well as for non quantitative topics. I think the, the key thing to uh, to think about a case method is uh, is engagement. And if I if I go one level higher, uh, how do we learn? Well, a precondition of learning is engagement. So if I'm disengaged, basically I, I, I send text to Brett while I'm in the class. There's no way I will learn. You know, it's like I may, I may learn something from Brett, but, uh, you know, not from the professor. So, so, so the key thing is you got to be engaged as a precondition to learning. Now, you can't exactly force it, right? So you have to be able to, it's kind of like watching a movie. Uh, you know, nobody will force you to watch a movie. You just have to be sort of immersed because of what you find interesting and what's the purpose. So, so every case has a purpose, you know, has a goal. We have these learning objectives 
before we, we write any case, and I write a lot of cases, but you know, before you write any case, you have to think about why am I writing this case? What do I have to teach on this case? Why, why is this case versus another case important, right? Uh, in a case, I think of it as a story, right? It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a real story. Sometimes it's actually also imaginative. It's like a script, like, you know, you're, you're like a director and you're trying to think about how this whole thing is going to play out in class. And essentially you're thinking of a sequence of questions and then a sequence of potential answers. But, you know, you want to orchestrate this in a way that basically makes learning, um, you know, clear and, and obvious. And sometimes it's murky, which is also very fun. Um, I'll give you an example. So, you know, uh, let's say I wrote a case on, um, I wrote a case on, let me see which one. I have, I have written so many, I have to think of, <laughs> I have to think of one now. Um, so I wrote a case on Deutsche Bank and uh, the regulatory environment on Basel III uh, some time ago. And uh, Basel III was a regulatory environment that forced uh, uh, certain rules on banks on how much capital or how equity and other forms of equity they can they need to hold. So 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 you start in by the question, you know, the first question, and, and and you launch the case by asking, you know, the famous cold call. You ask a student and you say, I don't know, Brett, uh, <laughs> since you are in front of me. So Brett, uh, I can ask uh, Samson from Alexandria or, you know, Lei from Yangon or Henry in China, but now he's in Boston and so on. I can say, Henry, um, what would you do in this case and why? What are the strategic uh, questions that you have to really think about and answer? Um, and then I can go, you know, I can start from like a very broad thing. Uh, and you can say, oh, you know, we have to think about, I don't know, the corporate governance of the bank. The bank is not doing that great, blah, blah, blah. And you know, this was 2013 when I wrote that case. And, and then slowly but surely, you can, uh, you can get more people involved, right? Where you can, you know, you can say, um, yeah, I started with Henry, then I go to Samson. Samson, what do you think about, uh, you know, what Henry said? And start a conversation. And uh, slowly but surely, um, you, you, know, you write some things on the board and you're trying to basically unfold the case. And I think what, uh, what is fascinating about a case is that no one has the full picture including the CEO of the company. So, you know, you can't expect exactly, uh, you know, the students to really know everything about it. Eh? So you just uh, slowly but surely and working together, you bring about this knowledge that you didn't know was there. And, and you're pointing to things in the case where, because it's very data driven, right? So you just say, oh, according to, I mean, I look at figure one and, you know, stock price is not doing well. And so why? Why does the market penalizing you? Oh, because they're afraid that you don't have enough capital and raising capital is always not a very uh, good thing for a bank. Uh, that means that you don't have enough and it's very costly, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you just go through this exercise. And uh, I think what's fascinating is how much 
first, how much you push yourself to really think collaboratively about everybody else in that conversation and really uncover the things you didn't know. And um, I think in the, in the end, it's almost like, uh, wow, what, what, what did we do here? And it's a very different thing from me going in front of the classroom and, you know, kind of pontificating, uh, here is the strategic issues. Here is what you do. Here is what you, sometimes I don't have the full answers myself, right? I mean, I've thought of a lot of things of what's going to go on in this, uh, in this classroom environment, but there are surprises. And, you know, somebody, you know, may have worked <laughs> in this bank or in another bank brings in a different perspective that I hadn't completely thought about. And uh, it's also a great learning experience for me as well. Uh, so, so, so it goes both ways. And I think, um, I think, you know, just, just adding to the knowledge uh, uh, bit by bit and, and, and coming up with arguments to strengthen your position or support your position is really what you will be doing later on in your jobs. I tell my students, imagine you go to a place where you do two years of MBA and you never opened your mouth. What a waste of time. Because when you go to any place to work, you have to open your mouth and you have to really argue with reason and logic and based on data to support your arguments. And so what I tell people is like every class is like a board meeting. And so what would you say to convince the other board members? When will you say what you want to say? So you have to choose the timing as well. How much you're going to say? How much you're not going to say? How, how well will you listen? Uh, and how would you lead? So there's like everything right there. And uh, I think that's why, you know, our students feel extremely prepared in their next phases of their lives. And uh, they still want to see me in Delhi and Buenos Aires and, and New York <laughs> after all these years. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's honestly so, um, so gratifying to, uh, and it never gets boring or old because there's always new issues that you write about and new stories and like in the banking you know uh, sector that i mean i'm i'm teaching is is constantly right so there's always something new that is happening but in every in, in every um you know in every field uh and so i think i think by the ability to sort of write about the new stuff make everybody very current uh, at the same time, you don't dismiss the history because I say there's not that many great ideas. <laughs> there is a, a few great ideas that get repeated <laughs> and, uh, and we forget about how these great ideas got us into trouble at some point. <laughs>
<laughs> and then they morph themselves in a different way. Uh, an example of this is, um, so I'm teaching uh, quite a bit about the financial crisis and especially, you know, after I came back from Wall Street in 2007. Uh, so I wrote a lot about a financial crisis and uh, the big, um, I mean, in the middle of it was the mortgage-backed securities, so CDOs. And so I teach a case on CDOs, which is uh, pretty fascinating because it's a, it really encompasses the whole financial system. Huh? And, and so the different players from investment banks to banks, retail banks, to uh, rating agencies, to um, uh, the, the regulators, to um, debt investors, to equity investors, to you know, hedge funds, to, to asset managers. I mean, you name it, they were all in there and making money and uh until they didn't and so it was it's a fascinating story and i don't think people realize that mortgage-backed securities had been invented 20 years before or 30 years before 25 years before until i teach the following case <laughs> where where it's an older case from that era and uh wow it's like this thing had disappeared and then it's just like came back with a vengeance and of course we didn't pay attention to some of the parameters of you know the inputs to a model that basically got us into into trouble later on and so we we you know we dissect sort of first of all the reason for a financial instrument a financial product to exist and and then how it can be misused um and abused actually and and, and cause us trouble uh, for example so so it's fascinating so you really have to understand the past you have to understand the, the present you have to understand all i mean there's all these new things that are happening especially in finance i would say um i mean the basics are the basics but you you have like new um fields like you know cryptocurrencies fintech etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's there's that keeps you young honestly <laughs> although gray hair, but keeps you young in spirit. <laughs> um, and always something to learn huh? because uh, it's a, it, it, never gets, it never gets boring. You know, that's the other thing. And um, yeah, I, I, you know, just that, I think that that's a great thing, the greatest thing about being a faculty, especially in a place like Darden, where, you know, you have the basically carte blanche to develop what you want to develop. And, uh, you know, within within your course, and 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 just think about new ideas, and also think about new ways that you want to uh, influence your students. Um, so, and 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 that's you know not always like uh, obvious. You know, just even after all these years, I always think very carefully about. Why do I want to write this case? Is this something that I want to teach? Um, what are the students going to take away from this? And then it gets more complicated because you have to think about how this case fits with everything else that you have written and everything else that you do. So it's not just a case, but it's like a, essentially, uh, you can think of like a movie or a theater play I call it a Netflix series. So you, you, you get like, you know, the first episode, the second, the third, and how this evolves so that you can basically get, um, you know, in a way, 
okay, it sounds uh, cliche, but one plus one is not two, but it's three. So how you can get this accumulation of knowledge and the progression over time that basically allows you to, oh, I, I saw this before, and now I can basically um, use that knowledge to think something different and, 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 and therefore kind of create this, uh, you know, this sequencing and this progression. Uh, and it's almost like uh, I say every, every course has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's like, uh, and the end is, doesn't end, but it's kind of like, you know, you got that thing where you have to really pace it. How you start, like an example, you start with a very broad case that almost brings out all the issues that you want to cover later on. And uh, I mean, it's not my invention. I learned so much from my colleagues, honestly, in how you think about a course, which is so different from courses in, in, in other places where, you know, sometimes you feel like, oh, chapter one today, chapter two tomorrow, chapter three, isn't that boring? You know, somebody else has decided how you want to do things. But here you really have to think about, okay, how do I write my own play and, and why that makes more sense? I mean, that's, I think, ultimately that's the key, right? Is that if other people adopt what you do and are interested in what you do, um, you know, it shows a bit that there's some market confirmation to use a finance term. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, and you know, sometimes you learn from mistakes as well. Um, but, but the other thing, the last thing to say on this is that over the years, you, you know, I'm able to uh, really go into places that, you know, I hadn't thought I would. Um, an example is, uh, you know, I've taught the like quasi strategy cases. So I got back to those people who did not think that my background was suited for strategy. <laughs> it was fascinating. Um, because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's also fascinating to see how you can, uh, you can basically write broader things. Because after all, this is sort of an enterprise perspective that we teach at Darden. It's not like, oh, in finance, you only do discount cash flows. That's it. Yorgos, don't do anything else. No, no, no. Uh, I, can, I can really, because the problems don't come to you isolated, right? So they, there's like a, these broad issues that are strategic, that have a finance component, you know, that has a hugely leadership and behavioral component. And, uh, um, and so I wrote a leadership case, you know, I've written several leadership cases. In, in my course, um, my leadership uh, faculty may not completely agree, uh, but but it's a it's a. I mean, we're teaching on how do you become, let's say, a CEO of a bank. You got to you know what does it mean to lead uh, a financial institution. So um, anyway, so it's a, it's been so fascinating uh, to 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 explore all these issues and um, and come up with you know a real feedback, right, which is the students love what you do or the students feel like you should do more of this or less of that. And, you know, the course has evolved uh, with all the feedback that you're getting and um, and you can never reach the perfect course and the perfect case. Uh, you're trying, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, experience helps, I have to say, you know, you can 
you know what has worked in the past, so you know what potentially could work in the future, but you're also taking risks. And that's what I love about Darna at this stage. Huh? That uh, So I wrote a case about a former student of mine who was an investment banker for 10 years. And then she decided to start a wellness company. She's from, uh, from the Caribbean. And the case stopped where she had to make this decision. She was a very successful investment banker and she had to make the decision, do I stick with investment banking or do I do something else? And um, it was a risk. I'd never done a case like this. And, uh, and I had my student uh, beamed in from, uh, from the Caribbean. Um, and uh, it, was, it was like probably one of the best cases I've taught. Uh, because it was so uh, a little bit out of my comfort zone. <laughs> so I had to really step up. And then, of course, you have the former student that you want to make that person also feel like, you know, you've, uh, you've told her story well. Uh, and you've, it has played out. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, there's a real test. How, like, are the students involved, engaged? They really want to take position. And that's the other thing, you know, I start the question, are you going to continue being a banker or are you going to go and do something else? And, you know, you, you can start from that and you can see that, you know, the divergence and then, you know, you have people talk about it and argue why, what she should do. Meanwhile, she's there, my student, uh, uh, sister. I mean, the, the, the last part to say, Brett, on this is, uh, you know, when you remember your student, uh, she was a student uh, from 2004. Uh, you know, I mean, how was I 20 years ago, right? So it's a, it's a very different me than now, hopefully more wise, <laughs> hopefully, who knows. But the students are at a certain stage in their lives and certain knowledge and certain ways of um, you know, expressing themselves and so on. I mean, as you would expect, and then you see them 20 years later or, you know, 18 years later, and you're like, whoa. I mean, the way they are expressing themselves, they would have aced it, you know, back then <laughs> if, they, if they were, I mean, they would have been like, whoa. But, but you see this progression as a leader and the way you are thinking through and you can actually identify the Darden, um, a little bit the darn imprint, a little bit. I mean, actually quite a bit in terms of the, the, the logic to the arguments, the way they dissect the issues, the way they go about it, the way, the way they think about the pros and cons, the way about they think about, uh, you know, what do I want in life, the way, on and on, right? I mean, it's just how can I get there? You know, what does it mean? I mean, there's really deep conversation I mean, on this one, but on so many others. And so anyway, it was, uh, yeah, it was like a, a great way to end the course last year. It was fantastic. Um, so I think uh, more to come. <laughs> well, I want to take some time and talk about one of your classes here, a very popular elective that you teach, financial institutions and markets. I, I will note I was on uh, a webinar earlier this week with a number of executive MBA alumni. We had a panel discussion and they remember this class very fondly, wanted to come to this discussion today. Uh, such big fans of yours. And I know this class has evolved a lot. I think you launched it originally in 
2008 after you got back from your time on Wall Street uh, for the full-time MBA program and then executive MBA. I think this elective was introduced in 2017. And so tell us a little bit more about the course and then and we'll kind of get into some of the other questions I have. Sure, sure. So, so just, uh, you know, it was fascinating. Um, when I came back from Wall Street, by the way, it wasn't, it wasn't clear that I was going to come back from Wall Street. But uh, um, again, I had to think like a Darden MBA and, and, and decide, do I stay in Wall Street and uh, as an investment banker or do I go back? And uh, um, a true story is that I actually bump into a former student of mine in New York and uh, at the Museum of Modern Art out of all places. And uh, uh, she was visiting from another uh, country actually. And uh, I was telling her my big decision that I had to make. And, and she's like, Yorgos, you're meant for Darden, you go back. And I was like, wow, okay. That was like, there was no hesitation there. Uh, <laughs> you know, b before I was like driving my wife crazy. Today we're leaving, we're going back to Darden. Tomorrow we're saying, you know, and it was just like, um, because, because that life was also fascinating. I can talk about this uh, as well. Um, I learned so much. Uh, but anyway, I think, uh, uh, when I came back, uh, my area head asked me, actually, he was one of the guys, the people who were in my interview 20 years before or whatever, 15 years before. Um, and he said, what did you learn in Wall Street? Uh, I said, well, I covered financial institutions. He said, why don't you start a course in financial institutions? And that's basically how, how the genesis was. And uh, uh, you know, I wrote a series of cases, you know, in financial institutions about um, kind of strategic issues that they're facing in terms of capital, in terms of distributions, in, in terms of regulatory environment, uh, and, uh, you know, trying to analyze the crisis, understand where it came from, why, you know, talking about incentives, talking about uh, how Basically, how do you get in a, in a mess like this? And basically the inability to, to lead, uh, I mean, it's a huge thing and manage risks. Uh, it's a big component. My, my other research is actually, my academic research is all on risk management and or a big part. And so, so I come from a very, um, in a way, very deep uh, place on understanding risks. And it's a not so simple because there's quantitative stuff and then there's qualitative stuff that, it's harder to measure and so on. But anyway, so this is a, this is a parenthesis here, but uh, I started the course and, and then I had uh, so a, a big chunk on financial, on financial crisis and so on. And over the years, of course, uh, I think we had the big change in the mid, you know, 2015, 2014, a little bit earlier uh, on FinTech. So uh, there were um, basically, uh, technology companies that are trying to solve financial problems in a sort of a better way, more efficient, you know, using, uh, you know, algorithms. And luckily I had studied uh, computer engineering, so I knew what an algorithm is and, uh, you know, how it works and how, uh, how you code uh, on, on this. And uh, you also understand the limitations, the biases, everything. I mean, you know, so many things, right? And, and then, you know, you understand Having understood banks, or so I thought, um, you can you can see where the advantages and disadvantages of those two big players 
uh, are, like, you know, when you are a bank, what are your advantages when you are a fintech? What are your advantages, but also what are the disadvantages? So I wrote a case about this, which was great with a student. Uh, and um, it was it was sort of the first case on understanding the, the space huh? and understanding what kind of areas fintech can, um, you know, improve. Uh, I wrote a case on payments, which is like a big, wide open field. And uh, I wrote a case on um, M-Pesa, which is a very well known uh, example of a, uh, of a Kenyan uh, fintech and how it evolved and uh, why they did what they did and what are some of the pitfalls. Um, I haven't been to Kenya, so I have to say, I, I mean, I've been to South Africa. Uh, and that's far, I know. <laughs> and uh, so for those of you from Nigeria, I know distances in Africa are big. And uh, I learned so much, though. I learned so much about the story, the, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit there and also the um, the solutions that they were trying to, um, you know, to come up with, because essentially a solution is is it's got to have a problem, a real problem. And, you know, over there, a big problem was that if you wanted to get money from, you know, from to your relatives in the countryside, you know, you had to basically bring cash. And that was like a very, very um, risky proposition at some, at some point. So so why not use mobile phones? And, and at that time, the flip phones, because, you, you know, who could afford iPhones and so on to basically send money? Uh, and so on and on. Uh, so payments is a big so I wrote a case on payments, um, uh, crypto, <laughs> need I say more? <laughs> so I wrote a case on Bitcoin and uh, blockchain. Um, I mean, it's funny how uh, my past sort of comes back to uh, not haunt me, but, you know, just uh, to help me understand the new issues. Because, you know, for somebody who has not... Uh, studied engineering, it, it's, you know, could be like, I, I don't know how to program. So I'm not even sure what this is all about. But uh, I think you're trying to sort of analyze, understand, sort of, uh, and teach uh, what this uh, new technologies um, can do and what they cannot do. And a big example is funding. So the question is, you know, who has a big advantage? And clearly the banks have a big advantage because they have deposits that are, or so we thought, are very sticky. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, these deposits are nearly not costing as much. Whereas for fintechs, their funding comes usually from the capital markets or privately, and they cost a lot more. So when you have a cost disadvantage, you, you really have to basically have a, um, a return that is is sort of more than compensates for that and so how easy that is and so on and and so i you know i wrote a lot about the evolution of fintech so it's more on the strategy side honestly uh, understanding where this is going uh where banking is going also you know how um i mean mobile banking if you don't have mobile banking you don't have a bank now so these are a lot of things that have you know have um you know, have, have been going on now. Uh, you, you know, I can I can call call you, Brett, about you know how much uh, how much J.P. Morgan spent 
I'm, I cheated. I googled it, but I I I knew the ballpark. Okay, I knew the ballpark. Uh, how much did they spend last year on IT? Let me go. It's uh, two billion. Ha. Ha. <laughs> The answer is no. <laughs> any any second guess? All right, ten billion. Close. It was twelve billion dollars. Okay, so I mean, twelve billion dollars for IT uh, last year. So that tells you something, right? Uh, basically, it tells you that you better be very strategic in how you allocate this capital. And you better understand, you know, what exactly these new technologies are all about and where they're going. And uh, so it's a, uh, and of course you can argue, you can ask, you know, do fintechs have 12 billion? The answer is no. So you can easily think about, okay, JP Morgan can actually buy you, which is not a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> and it happened to a Greek uh, fintech uh, last year, which was actually pretty fascinating. Uh, one of the earliest, uh, and first uh, unicorns, as we call it. Uh, uh, so, so anyway, so it's it's a fascinating world how it changes, how uh, much investment there is. So you you gotta now bring technology into this. And of course, you know, you talk about digital currencies and you talk about cryptos. Uh, you know, when I wrote this Bitcoin case, there was this uh, uh, imaginary scenario, but it, it it seems very real, where a hedge fund person has to decide whether to invest in Bitcoin or not. And uh, you get some amazing conversations among the students because, you know, there's some who are really Bitcoin uh, sort of, uh, how do you call it, not just funds, but like, you know, really believe in Bitcoin and technology and where it's going. And you got this, uh, you know, other side that is, you know, a little bit more skeptical about, you know, what, what problem do they solve? And, and then you go into this conversation about, is it an asset? Is it a commodity? Is it, what is it? You know, and then you can try to think about digital gold and you say, oh, is it better than gold? I mean, why are we fascinated with gold for 4,000 years? And should we be fascinated with Bitcoin? And, uh, and the Bitcoin itself has changed. So, so when I started, when I wrote this case in 2017, honestly, I wasn't sure how long Bitcoin would be, was going to be around. And uh, I mean, it started theoretically in 2009, but, you know, 2013, uh, 2017, it was like at $5,000. And actually the question is, you know, would you, would you buy Bitcoin? Uh, in retrospect, that's a good decision because now it's 30. So, so, <laughs> so it, it, but you, you don't have to just say, oh yeah, I'm right, but you have to really articulate why and what's the reason and so on. So you really have to understand, um, essentially one, one important part is that are, is this going to be attractive to people with a lot of money, so institutional investors, to to get into Bitcoin, and why? And uh, I think one big change we've seen over the over the uh, the years, these five. I mean, imagine if these five years um, is is a little bit of the uh, institutional investors and hedge fund managers coming in more and opening up more into Bitcoin than than others. And so I just finished a case on Bitcoin 2023, we call it. So kind of like the updated um, uh, Bitcoin case, um, just to point out some of the of the changes. And of course, you know, the moment you write something, there's new stuff happening. So I wrote about decentralized finance, and uh, um, you know, what is decentralized finance? I mean, it's 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 like quite fascinating. Basically, you can think of a world. 
Okay, why is it decentralized? It means that the same thing is in many places. And so there's not like one, one thing that controls everything, right? So there's like the same thing is like copied everywhere. And so basically that means presumably that it's, um, I don't want to say it's safer, but you know, imagine if you have like one thing in one database and somebody goes in and hacks your database, then wow, what am I doing? But it's harder to hack, you know, gazillions of databases which have the same copy. Yeah? So that's sort of an original idea, uh, which was not original, it's computer science, you know, who came up sometime earlier. But, uh, but the other funny thing is that things happen without any person sort of, uh, Kind of saying do this do that it's kind of like pre-coded and so you get things that are happening because the code decides to invest in x y and z for example so so just to make it a little more clear uh, in the beginning of times you could just buy and sell bitcoin fine but can i do more with bitcoins well while they're sitting somewhere and that's a whole other conversation. Well, they're sitting somewhere. Why not I deposit in a, in a, in a crypto bank? Wow. Uh, and earn some interest. So somebody thought about, why don't I have a crypto bank where people can deposit my, my Bitcoins and earn some interest? Isn't that something? So that's, that's a, a new innovation. And then, of course, once you have a crypto bank, the crypto bank has to lend it out at a higher rate. And then you have all these conversations about what is the right rate to lend? What is the right rate for interest rate? Meanwhile, this is happening in, a, in, 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 this, uh, in this computerized world where there is pretty much no regulation. And uh, it's coming to a theater near you, <laughs> it seems. But you can imagine what can happen. Huh? And, uh, and then... And then on top of that, you can actually not just lend, you can actually invest in this crypto hedge funds, because in that space now there's also hedge funds uh, that are basically codes that are doing things. Uh, it's really almost like watching the matrix or watching, watching sort of a, I don't know, back to the future, something like, and of course, you know, when you do things like that, there's a, a big, uh, potential for return, but also a big potential for uh, a big risk. Huh? So, so, and then when you, when you are out there and there's less of a regulatory environment, things can happen where it can get completely out of hand. And uh, so we have these recent stories that are going to be litigated and make, make my life very interesting. You know, just, I have to keep up. <laughs> It feels like an interesting time for regulation, both for banking and for crypto. And Gary Gensler, SEC, basically saying uh, we're we're out to regulate crypto now in a lot of different ways. Lots of lawsuits uh, happening. And then you also have this question of has technology outpaced even traditional banking regulations? How quickly did the bank run on SVB happen? Uh, you've obviously got other banks in the news too. But uh, what do you what do you make of all these stories, Jorgos? I think, uh, you know, there's always a catch up, right? So we have, uh, I, so when I wrote this case on uh, Deutsche Bank and Basel III, um, you know, 
I ask the question to my students, why is it Basel III? Oh, because there was a Basel II before that, and before that there was a Basel I. And, uh, and you know, where is Basel? It's in Switzerland, and, you know, they like fondue there. And so, I, I, you know, I just bring them in there and joke. I, and I, you know, I have my, my brother lives in Zurich. So, and, you know, my sister-in-law is from, from Zurich. And so, so I, I know Switzerland quite well, but it's, uh, it's kind of fascinating to, to say, oh, you know, obviously there were like some, you know, things that happened in Basel too that didn't cover you know, what needed to be covered. And we discovered later on that, hey, we needed actually a new regulatory environment. I mean, one, 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 one thing is, uh, and that's what this case actually is all about, is that how during 2007, 2008, the banks basically have had um, really exploited the, to have as little equity as possible uh, within the regulatory framework but you can imagine, you know, if you want to calculate the return on equity, which is net income divided by equity, the less equity you have, the higher the ROE. And so for CEOs, for investors, for everybody is a great thing. But the less equity you have, the less ability you have to cushion your losses, which means the riskier you are. And so it's, uh, it's like this fascinating story and you know that Deutsche Bank at some point was making was earning 24 percent return on equity and I and I so I, I asked my students I said who earns 24 percent in in equity should a bank you know do, can you think of a like like a bank uh earning this much and it's it's pretty it's pretty uh fascinating how we you know we, we when we make 24 percent we think we're so smart um, and I said, you know, just just watch it. Just be careful. When you make a lot of money, yes, you may be very smart, but you also have taken probably a lot of risk. So you really have to understand how to manage that. Anyway, so Basel III came along and uh, upped the how much equity you need to have and how much some of the other things that counted as equity can no longer count as equity. So, I mean, this is the fascinating world of investment banking and finance where, you know, you're trying to really pitch and lobby uh, the rating agencies and the regulators and say, you know what, this thing looks like equity, smells like equity, it, it could be equity. And it's really, uh, you know, something in between debt and equity. So these are sometimes they're called preferreds. And uh, anyway, I'm not going to bore you with all the details. More on this, you have to you have to come to my class, Brett, and all of you guys, if you find it interesting. But I mean, I love this case because it really talks about um, Essentially, the interplay, there's, there's even a word for it, uh, Brett, which is called regulatory arbitrage. So it means that you look at the rules and you try to find ways to go around the rules. And legal, very legal ways. So the question is, you know, who thinks ahead of, you know, what might happen? And, you know, the banks can make a lot of money by engaging in this regulatory arbitrage because, that means they do something risky that the regulators don't think it's risky or haven't really accounted for it as being risky. Remember, to make money, you need to take some risk. You need to be smart as well, but you need to take some risk. And so if the regulators haven't really accounted for that risk and you do it, then you can, you know, you do a regulatory arbitrage. 
and of course, that can get you into trouble because taking risk can get you into trouble. So, so then, you, of course, you have this new regulation that comes out after we've gotten into trouble. And an example of that is with SVB, where how fascinating the world is because SVB was a mid-size bank, what we call in the US mid-size. So it was between 100 and 250 billion in assets. And there was this um, um, basically quite a bit of lobbying, let's put it this way, that, hey, to keep up with the regulation, it costs us a lot of money and we are at a competitive disadvantage versus JP Morgan that writes a check on $12 billion on IT, for example. And so then the regulation you know, became a little bit less stringent for them. So they didn't have to do certain things. And so, you know, they ran into trouble because they did a lot of risky stuff, uh, SVB. And, um, well, it, I'm writing this case right now. So there's so many things there. One of it is that should the Fed have done something different and more? And the answer is yes. Uh, if they had done the regulatory uh, things that they could have done for the banks, let's say, that are like JP Morgan, would that save us? The answer again is no. So you have to really now even rethink about how do you, what we call stress test uh, a bank. Huh? A stress test means, you know, I have an adverse scenario. Uh, I don't know, inflation goes up by, I don't know, 5% and uh, unemployment goes up by whatever. And then I, I go through a mathematical model and try to see how this will impact the bank, meaning, will you have enough equity to, to withstand? Will you, will you have enough cash? Um, so we're learning so much about, about even the things that we had in place perhaps wouldn't have helped us with SVB, but at the same time, there was some obvious error in risk management, obvious, that they should have been really rectified before we got us into trouble. Um, an example is, they had a lot of money in, uh, in treasuries. Now, treasuries are very safe, right? Except if interest rates go up and the value of treasuries go down and you have to sell them because people are taking their money out. And this is what happened. So treasuries went down because interest rates went up. So I thought I had 100 million, but now I have uh, 70. And meanwhile, somebody... Remember, it's called run on the bank because somebody has to run to the bank. Now I don't have to run anywhere. I just press a button and I just move my money. So it's a new world of running the bank. And it all can start from a tweet. So it's just so fascinating how, you know, you really have to think about this new environment and what it means for banking safety, but also, uh, look, if the banks are not safe, the system is not safe and we all can not sleep very well at night, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well, all right, Yorgos, uh, we've got just a few more minutes, if it's okay. We started a little late, so I'm going to go in the bonus yeah, time. I mean, I'm uh, here, okay. I'm yours. All right, all right. Uh, we got a question here about a case that you wrote about climate risk and banking. Um, I appreciate people doing doing their homework out here. So uh, it's called Cities, it's about Cities uh, Net Zero Future. It touches on the green bond market. Do, do you actually... Do you use this case in, in class? Tell us a little bit. For people who haven't read the case or not as familiar, tell us about the case. And is this a case that you that you use? 
I'm so impressed. Uh, now the question I, I, I have to think about is, should I tell the answer to some of the people who may take, I'm just kidding, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's funny, I, I was going to talk about this, uh, you know, uh, I love this case because uh, I wrote it uh, last year and I taught it for the first time last year. And uh, uh, it, it, by the way, Citigroup was my former employer, so there was my, my employer during my Wall Street years between 2005 and 2007. So, so I, I still have friends who are at Citigroup and I actually, okay, so, so let me impress you, Brett, with my uh, network. Uh, the CEO of Citigroup uh, was the boss of my boss at that time. So I know, I, know, I know Jane Fraser quite well, I would say. I mean, quite well, I shouldn't say quite well, but I know her and she's terrific. But uh, now, many years later, she's the CEO of, of Citigroup after she has done so many good things in uh, different uh, areas of Citigroup uh, that she was, uh, she was uh, leading. And now she's the CEO. And this is like a big decision to make, which is basically, uh, we want to be net zero in uh, 2050. And we also want to, um, to really, you know, she starts the first day, and it's so fascinating, the first day that you come on board as a CEO, which means she has thought about all this way before, uh, to say, we're going to go and by 2030, we're going to issue a billion of sustainable finance, which is both green uh, finance, but also uh, social bonds, which is basically, and there's this whole thing about what it means to be a green bond, what it means to be a social bond. Uh, you can think about a green bond, something that helps uh, uh, you know, greening the environment, and then something that uh, helps, uh, I don't know, let's say, uh, low, um, you know, like housing for less uh, privileged people, or, uh, you know, all kinds of things on the social side. And so, so that's the first part. Uh, but then it becomes like, you know, all right, you're doing this big bet. The question is, why will the investors invest in those, right? Um, that's one question. Uh, they may not really be there to, to help you green the environment, all right? For example, why would the issuers issue green bonds? Like, is it less costly for them? If it's less costly for them, why would the investors accept a lower return? So it's like you get into the really nitty gritty of understanding, is there a market for green bonds? How much is there? And you can look at the data, you can understand a little bit about where it's going. Uh, is this your big bet that you're going to place? Like, do you have an advantage? Because one of the things that happens on net, net impact, which is, uh, to me, was very fascinating because it was like on the, on the bank side, is that when you want to be net zero, it means that, because what banks do is do loans to companies. That means that you have to now green your clients, which means that you have to convince them that they, you know, it's, it's better for them to also issue um, green bonds. And the question is, what if they don't want to? Would you say no? Would you basically say, okay, goodbye. I don't want you as a client anymore. And on top of that, there's like this education that needs to happen for investment bankers. There's this whole process of how do you actually get a green bond to be certified as a green bond. Uh, and, you know, investment bankers want to just 
do a, a deal and get 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 moving to the next one. And so this is now a whole other layer of uh, institutionally, what will that mean? But also, you know, you can talk about the world, right? So which is, uh, where is it going? Is this like, a, is this what you would do as Jane Fraser? Like, what is your advice to Jane? You know, would you, would you have recommended that she does this big bet on green bonds, social bonds, and net zero? And uh, it, it was a fascinating conversation. Fascinating conversation. So, yeah, uh, I learn so much every time I write a case. And thank you for somebody, for somebody who is really uh, trolling me on whatever and figuring out the cases. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Plus one, uh, already you get, <laughs> you've already gotten points in my course. <laughs> for those of you wondering, plus one is uh, Darden, your, case, uh, your class participation counts a part of, your, part of your grade in the faculty. Plus one, it's a, it's a positive thing, as Good you thing, probably have exactly. inferred. Um, so, uh, Yorgos, last question here. Um, what are three books you would recommend for our attendees? Or just three, um, it could be a podcast, could be a movie, could be anything. But um, for folks, uh, things that you've been reading, you're, you've been interested in. Very good. Um, so one, one advice I give my students always is uh, read, 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 and read, and read, and read. I mean, it's, the ideas come from reading and reading carefully and understanding and try to think through issues. And, you know, I say, I start my day and I tell my students, I read the Financial Times, I read, you know, uh, Bloomberg or uh, CNBC, or, uh, you know, th this is sort of the start of the day. So I got to understand what the news are, what, what the situations happen, because those are giving me also ideas for the things I want to teach my students, right? So let's start with that. But for you guys, we're going to be on the other side, who are going to be dealing with these issues, you better understand what's going on. And, uh, and that was like, uh, that was a big lesson, actually, in uh, during Wall Street years, where you had to understand and read everything about the news, because it, imagine in Wall Street, I, I was talking to CFOs and treasurers all the time. And what if something had happened to that company like a merger acquisition or like anything any news and i didn't know basically what kind of banker are you you just don't know what's going on with our company and you're trying to advise us so it's like a, a sort of almost like table stake but uh in terms of books um i love a book that uh, is a quite old one now it's called uh, when genius failed and it's by roger lowenstein and it's uh, two nobel laureates who had a hedge fund and didn't do very well. And uh, in fact, it was the first bailout uh, of uh, financial institutions, essentially. Uh, in, I think it was 1998. So it was, uh, it's a great story about risk and return. And basically the theoretical uh, bet which was actually not just theoretical, but the, the theoretical premise, I should say, of the strategy, uh, which didn't pan out. And a big part of that also lesson is that when you use a lot of debt, uh, you don't have as much leeway, right? Uh, too much debt allows you to put very little equity. So that means the return on equity is very high. But too much debt means that if you don't get the the, the money that you want, that you need, the return, you can't pay the debt, and then you're done. So this is kind of what happened in that book. Uh, but it's, it's a little bit more complicated. But uh, 
anyway, so that's a fascinating book, I think. And I always advise it to my students because, you know, in the end of the day, I tell students, what is finance? It's really about risk and return. And we can measure the return afterwards, but the risk, we do have some models, but it, we're not always, I mean, we're always seeking to get better at the models of understanding risk. So, so this is one book I, I highly recommend. Uh, the second book uh, I just, well, I can't really recommend, but I will recommend it because I just got it, but I, so I haven't read it. And it's called, um, it's by Darren uh, Adzemoglu and uh, uh, Simon Johnson uh, from MIT, uh, quite famous economists. And it's called uh, Power and Progress, I think, or something like this. I have, I have written the title. I just got it yesterday. Um, power, da -da -da -da. give me a moment. Yeah, power and pros. Power and progress, and uh, it's a it's a book about technology, and it's a book about how uh, essentially the bottom line. Like I read the bottom line, which I don't know. Then now I have to read like a seven hundred page book. But it's uh, the bottom line was like technology can get us to amazing places but it can also if you let if you leave it unchecked it can get us to really bad places and so it's it's really a question of how do we think about the the rules that we're going to put around technology so that we can make sure that we have a productive economy and a, and a fair economy and, and equitable and uh, as opposed to you know put like uh, leave it like whatever and then basically some people are going to make money but the rest is not going to uh to help us very much and that's that's a um like a big conversation right now with ai and touch gpt and um, on and on right as to what kinds of uh you know regulation we're going to put i mean the, the tricky part about regulation brett is that um you got to understand the problem and then you have to put the right regulation so that there is very little room for regulatory arbitrage. So you're trying to really understand how these other players are going to try to get around it and you try to make it as effective as possible. But until you understand the full extent of the problem, which of course it doesn't happen every, you know, on a, just like in one day. I mean, it's like because the problem morphs and changes and becomes something different, then it's hard. At some point, of course, you have to say, I'm going to regulate. Uh, and this is, this is what I'm going to do. This is what you can, and this is what you cannot do. But anyway, so this is, and you know, it talks about the industrial revolution, for example, one example I saw where basically not everybody benefited from the industrial revolution. And so they're winners and losers. So technology is not the end all be all in terms of, uh, improving the world um, all the time. So we have to be careful. That's my understanding so far, but I may be wrong. I got to read 700 pages to tell you what's going on. Okay, third book, which could be four books. Uh, third book is uh, by uh, uh, my favorite. So I love history, by the way, and, and history is so fascinating because it can teach you things that um, allow you to analyze a problem and you understand that history may repeat or may not, or, but, but it really gives you some framework. So, so one book uh, is by Peter Frankopan, and he's a, a professor of history at Oxford. And uh, it's called Silk Roads. And it's a very 
um, well-known book. I think it was written in 2015. What's fascinating about this book is really talking about how politics, wars, and economics are intertwined. And really talks about how essentially from antiquity, from ever, this uh, uh, economic interests have played into the world the way it has shaped. And, you know, you can say, oh, this is pretty obvious, but kind of taking you through the history and giving you the examples and understanding uh, pretty much things that you didn't think it was like economic base, like they're actually, so it's not just the Silk Road, what we know from history, but there's other things that are really Silk Roads, they're kind of Silk Roads that we didn't think they were. And uh, so it's a fascinating book, uh, highly recommend. And he just wrote a new book. It's called uh, The Earth Transformed. It's also 700 whatever pages. And I know, like, I feel like uh, so underperforming Brett, like I have not written a 700 page book. So I, I, I mean, it's, I'm so impressed by some of these guys. Uh, but anyway, uh, he wrote about he wrote about how civilizations over time have dealt with climate change or not. So essentially, what are these things that can help a civilization survive a climate change? And what are these things that they didn't do and basically, um, you know, eradicated this civilization? And ex an example is like, you know, the Mayans, which is sort of a theory that basically was a big drought and a big uh, sort of a climate issue that kind of changed the route uh, of that civilization. Um, but anyway, so I, like I said, I mean, you know, not everybody from Greece, by the way, is enchanted with history and archaeology. These are Greek words, but I am. And uh, I always learn so much understanding sort of what happened in the world. Uh, and try to bring in and, and the same thing with finance, huh? what happened in financial history, economic history, how that can inform where we're going. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's been such a such a blessing and such a privilege, honestly, to be um, a Darden, a place where I can, uh, you know, think big thoughts, but also then deliver them in, in the classroom in uh, such an engaging way, build these relationships that are so precious and so uh, satisfying and and basically feel like okay um I, at least they want to talk to me when i go to <laughs> to 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 delhi or, or or to you know rio and not just that but they're so excited to see me again and uh i'm glad i didn't say anything wrong so far all the examples they've brought up uh oh you said this and i'm like okay it still it still works okay <laughs> so well, Yorgos, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure having you here on Office Hours. We covered a lot of ground, and the last guest on Office Hours was Bob Bruner, the former dean of uh, the business school at, at Darden, also a student of history, also a member of the finance faculty uh, at Darden, and uh, an avid reader as well. So um, it's wonderful having you here. To all of our attendees, thank you so much for taking, taking time to join us for today's session. As always, we'll share out the recording of this session on our blog, Discover Darden, as well as our admissions podcast, Experience Darden, and the Exec MBA podcast. 
And we'll be back with the next installment of Office Hours in early August with Professor Tim Lasseter. Talk about operations, technology, all kinds of things. So hopefully you will join us uh, for that. But hope you have a wonderful weekend. And thank you again for being here. Thank, thank you, you so much, Brad. It was wonderful. I appreciate it. And thank you for tuning in from everywhere around the world. And that was a conversation with Professor Yorgos Alians, a member of the finance faculty here at the Darden School of Business, and the latest installment in our ongoing faculty spotlight series, Office Hours. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.